Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends, and Coenos Hermes. We are here to look into the unclassified residuum, the anomalous. I'm joined by a fellow philosopher, which is very exciting, and a philosopher who, like me, sort of left the bounds of what is considered appropriate, the bounds of propriety in academic philosophy. I'm here with Sharon Hewitt-Rollette, who is a philosopher and interdisciplinary researcher specializing in anomalous phenomena and their implications for our understanding of consciousness. She earned her Ph.D. from New York University in 2008, studying under Thomas Nagel, a very venerable name in academic philosophy. If you have heard of him, or if you haven't, now you know. And she taught at Brandeis University before leaving academia for an independent writing career. She currently serves on advisory board of the Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies and is a supporting researcher for the International Center for Reincarnation Research. Her books include The Source and Significance of Coincidences, Beyond Death, and The Feeling of Value. And we'll have some links in the show notes so that you can check out more of Sharon's work. Sharon, welcome to Dangerous Wisdom. Thank you, Nikos. Thank you for inviting me. Mm-hmm. So tell us, I guess, why don't we start out here? How does a well-trained academic philosopher like you get into this kind of crazy nonsense, Sharon? How did that happen? <laughs> well, I'll have to say it's not Thomas Nagel's fault. I should absolve him of any responsibility in this because I did not discover parapsychology or any of this weird stuff until after I had left academia, um, which was a couple of years even after I had left uh, NYU, where I was studying with him. So what did you do your dissertation on? Uh, in I wrote it in metaethics, which is uh, questions about, well, in philosophy, we would say the metaphysics and epistemology of ethics, but it's basically questions about uh, what what are we saying when we say something is good or bad or right or wrong? Is there an objective truth to or objective objective answer to those questions? Um, and if there is, how is it that we come to know about it? How do we have some kind of connection to objective moral truth? Uh-huh. So I argued that we that there are objective moral truths and tried to provide a, a picture of how we might come to know about them. That's wonderful. So you were already in the metaphysical, which is not a scary word for uh, those not familiar with academic philosophy. It's, it just means uh, questions about sort of what we think the ultimate nature of reality is in a, in a certain yeah. sense, right? And so it's not like metaphysical means I'm in the New Age section of the bookstore automatically. It, it, uh, mm-hmm. But you are asking about the, the deep questions. Is there such a thing as, as the good? Is there such a thing as the moral? Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah, go into the most the most fundamental questions about 
ethics, but then, yeah, about the nature of the world. And is is ethics and morality somehow part of that fundamental nature of the world? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, we were just talking about, uh, we mentioned Dewey briefly before we started talking, and he believed that. Right? He believed that uh, love is part of natural order. If we're experiencing mm-hmm. it, it's not just this, uh, you know, illusion, but if it's there, the good, the moral, those are now part of part of reality. Okay, so you you were in there, and then what happened? I'm sorry to interrupt your story. I just wanted to know, no. get some of the details. Uh, yeah, so I was writing about meta ethics. Um, then I got a, a postdoc fellowship at Brandeis University to teach ethics and meta ethics for a couple of years, and. When that was up, I decided not to apply for any other jobs in academia uh, because I already, well, I was a little bit tired of thinking about these questions using the tools of academic philosophy and, and, and of, and of, yeah, talking about it with philosophers, um, not because philosophers are bad people, but, but because they have a, we have these certain tools, a certain structure, these certain assumptions that we bring to all of our discussions. And there's, there's sort of one way to do philosophical discussion, at least within the analytic tradition, it it felt like there was this one way that you kind of had to explore these questions. And I felt like I had kind of gone as far as I could at that point with the things that exploring the things that interested me. And I wanted, I wanted the freedom to really explore more because I felt like so much of analytic philosophy is about creating arguments and being able to argue uh, from some premises that, that people already accept to uh, a novel conclusion. And so much of what I think is interesting about learning about reality and, and what is what is really real in our world is not something that we can get from a syllogism. It's it, we have to go out and sort of experience the wide variety of things that happen in this world or the things that people experience or feel or um, intuit in this world. And we're not going to have neat little boxes to put them in. Mm. Um, and I just wanted to know what else is out there that we, we aren't even talking about uh, mm. because, because we don't know how to, to bring it into this neat format. Yet. There you go. You, that's the call. That's the call because Thoreau said there are nowadays professors of philosophy, but not philosophers. And and with all due respect to to the brilliant minds that work in academia, for all I know, they may save us uh, in the end. But uh, it does feel like that's professorship and that we've lost Thalma. We've lost Mm -hmm. wonder that Plato and Aristotle Mm -hmm. said is the call. Mm -hmm. And that wonder comes with a sense of even a little fear and trembling, a, a sense of the uh, sacred, a sense of the mystery. Yes. Right. And that that does yeah. shake you from your dogmatic slumber that Kant mm-hmm. never really left. Come on. He was a <laughs> professor too. So we're talking about this this difference between what is going on and, and, and the reason that, the, that it goes on, I think, in part, is that the, the pattern of insanity that has us must keep people away from Thauma, the real philosophy, the life of... of 
philosophy as a way of life, as love wisdom. And we have to mm-hmm. just stick with the syllogisms. We have to just do, we have to, it's the analysis and construction of text and arguments in particular, because, you know, certain mm-hmm. texts are not allowed. You know, you start writing poetry and, you know, forget it. That's not philosophy anymore. So it is this right. very narrow band. And you yeah. do, and so your your soul felt the call to wonder, I think. Well, maybe. yeah, and, I, you know, I really appreciate the title of your podcast, Dangerous Wisdom, because I think that's part of why these other ways of knowing, other ways of exploring, uh, make people within mainstream academia uncomfortable, um, or at least within analytic philosophy. I think, you know, in the um, in the arts and uh, in you know, English departments, for instance, people may be a little more comfortable with these things, although they still have to kind of maintain this academic distance when they're writing about them. Um, but at least they have moments of of creativity where they are actually in the, in the act of, of, yeah, living in this more mystical, creative place. But I think certainly within academic philosophy, there's, there is, yeah, this sort of, uh, fear. I, I mean, fear is maybe a little too strong a word. Maybe it's not. I don't know. It depends on the person. But um, because when you start exploring, you start questioning the status quo. You start questioning the uh, the institutions that have upheld uh, the institutions that pay your pay your salary um, that that give you yeah your livelihood. And, and that was part of, that was also part of my discomfort in being in academia is because I really wanted, I wanted to explore all of this stuff with my students. And, and, and I, and I did, I got to explore a lot of really interesting topics um, during the two years I was teaching there, but I felt like some of the most important things that were in my mind to explore were things that really did uh, threaten that institution. Like I, I, and I was, I was, I felt I felt a little bit guilty about like taking these kids money, like, like these kids who are here paying, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a year. And yeah, I'm, you know, I'm able to tell them some stuff, but I'm not able to like tell them more than they can get from, you know, reading a bunch of great books or like going out and just talking to other wise people. And, and it sort of felt like, I started to have ethical issues with what I was doing. And that's not to say that that there isn't a place for all of that. I, I mean, I think there are a lot of very, um, I, I think there is a place for academia and institutions of higher learning, but I didn't feel like it was my place. I felt like that I wasn't, that something was wrong when I was trying to to teach kids in that environment. I wanted, I wanted to be able to come from more of a place of, of authenticity and um, uh, not trying to not trying to seem like I knew everything or, or was transmitting, you know, some established body of knowledge, but but taking them on a to a journey um, to ask deeper questions. And I wanted to go on that journey myself. Yeah. So eventually. Um, I was like, nope, I gotta, I gotta do this some other way. Yeah, that's the journey into the unknown, or the, or as we have a, as our tagline at Dangerous Wisdom, journey into mystery. And yeah. I do think, 
it's very interesting because I was thinking a little bit about uh, Chomsky and Herman's analysis of of journalism and the manufacture of consent. And how that part of what they were saying is that it's not like journalists, it's not like some editor comes and says, oh, now you can't uh, write that because that's uh, that sounds a little too communist, but that you just wouldn't have the job if you weren't mm-hmm. thinking that you were sincerely doing it, and but automatically mm-hmm. excluding things that didn't fit the paradigm mm-hmm. that weren't okay to, to put in print. Because yeah. they're, they, I mean, the part of their analysis of, of media is, of course, the businesses are paying to keep the newspapers running because of the advertising. So you can't do too much against the corporate thing and so on. So it's a great analysis that still applies in yeah. its own way, although communism is not now it's terrorism and other things, wokeism. These are the things they're trying to fight against. Mm-hmm. There is also, I think, uh, it's important to have compassion for ourselves to recognize that there is a deep fear. There is a fear, I think, yeah. and, and you see it often in people when they do get exposed to that paradigm-shattering experience, the mm-hmm. anomalous, mm-hmm. and their response to it is terror, even if they wanted it. Like William James, there's, we have an episode for yeah. anybody who wants to go back and listen. I, uh, William James was really open to these sorts of things, but he yeah. describes sheer terror at really experiencing it, being sort of drawn into the mystery. Yeah. And it's consistent. And so we do, I think we, it's, it's recognizing that even if we feel so gung-ho, let alone if we're skeptical <laughs> and we don't believe it, we're, we're a goat versus a sheep, right, as, as the one study put it, um, right. it doesn't change the fact that it could be scary. That the sacred is what inspires fear and tearing, terror yeah. in an untrained heart. If you don't have the training, mm-hmm. and even if you do, you, it might really shake you. Yeah, but it's the thing that that yes, that that can be terrifying, and yet there's something that makes it so that you can't look away. There's something that draws you into it. You, even though you're terrified, you need to understand. You need to you need to experience. Maybe never understand because. I don't think we we ever quite get to the point where we understand these experiences, but we're drawn to experience them more fully and to to become acquainted with them in some deeper way. Yeah, although I think sometimes people don't, yeah, that they, they just shut it down. They'll shut it down before it begins. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what the sheep and goats theory is telling us, right? Is that some people are going to keep themselves away from those experiences before they can even happen. The soul senses it, mm-hmm. and the ego freaks out and just keeps away. And then sometimes we, we get exposed to it, and we, we do want to turn away. I think you're right that some people still want to look, and I, something in the soul wants us to look and thinks we can handle it or we wouldn't be there. And at the same time, it, it, it's, it, I think we do sometimes retreat, and it's not easy. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think we need that compassion for ourselves. And right, com- and, and retreating is not, uh, not necessarily a bad thing or a negative thing, because yeah. we do, there is only so much that we can handle at any particular time. And, you know, the things that we're talking about right now is, is terrifying, like those are, those are only the tip of the iceberg as to the sorts of things that we could experience. And, you know, if that's already terrifying, then yeah, Mm. we each have our sort of our, our point where that we can kind of go up to tiptoe up to tiptoe up to, and, you know, look over the edge and see what's there. And then we might need to step back for a while. And, and there, there is a point I think where you can, you can go a little bit too far into the, um, 
when I was sort of, you know, talking about like paranormal things, but kind of too far into the weirdness and strangeness to where you lose a sense of your everyday reality. You lose your ability to operate in, in everyday reality. And it's really important to keep those two things balanced. Yeah. Well, that's part of education. I mean, you were touching on this question, I think, that brings us back to Socrates. I think it's so important for philosophers, but for any teacher, when Socrates asks about uh, Protagoras and this young man named Hippocrates, not the famous doctor, but Hippocrates wants to go see Protagoras because he thinks he's going to learn something. And Socrates says, well, what is he? And what will you become if you go study with him? Mm And within the context of the university, what what does it do? What does it make the student? Does it make the student into a being who could uh, discover the wondrous and the mysterious? Uh, you know, Aldous Huxley, in that uh, same episode about William James, uh, Aldous Huxley attributes a quote to James that I couldn't find, and I invited listeners to let me know, and I'll say it again if you know where it's at. But Huxley quotes William James as saying, that uh, practice may change our theoretical horizons. And he says in, in, in two ways, it can lead to new worlds and it can secure effectively new capacities for ourselves. And, and he says that knowledge, because he understands the, the Socratic view of education, I think, which is that you have to become the kind of person who is capable of knowing that's why we don't get an answer. That's why we get an aporia in the questions of, well, what is knowledge in the dialogues? Because that's the hidden teaching is that what you are at stake. It's not about justified true belief because you think that's something you could possess. The question is, what will you become that will make you capable of knowing something that, that until you change, you can't know it? You won't be ready for it, or as you as you point out, if it's suddenly somehow flooded into you, it could be discombobulating. It could even break down your life, which does happen. People really can have difficult, difficult experiences with with the mystical, with meditation. Even, I mean, mm-hmm. it's 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 the case that if you go rushing into meditation, we know very well that you risk a, a psychotic break. That's why there's all yeah. this training in these traditions. And uh, it's part of making us into the kind of being who can see it and can handle what they're seeing when we. Yes, yes, yeah. I, I sort of I think of that too as having a an ethical moral component because I think so much of that has to do with the the moral. Uh, alignment for lack of a better word, the moral alignment of your of your soul if um there are like you said there are certain sorts of things in order to explore them in order to experience them in order to know them you said um your your whole self is implicated a, a change in your whole self and and putting yourself choosing to allow yourself to become something different or or putting yourself in a position where you could become something different, I think is one of the deepest ethical choices that we make, especially when there's no return, when there's, when there is true, when there are true existential stakes to what's happening and you're, you're making a, an irrevocable choice in a sense, like what, what am I going to become? Mm -hmm. And um yeah it yeah it has that those are the the deepest questions that we have and i don't think that they're 
there, there's nothing in there's nothing in analytic philosophy that can answer those questions. I don't think that there's ultimately there are things in uh, yeah in, in the history of philosophy that had dealt with those questions. Certainly, philosophers who have have talked about that, but but no matter how many books you read, how many people you talk to, ultimately you're all alone in your own soul making making this choice. And it's it's not about like you said, it's not about having knowledge. It's about becoming something. That's and right. making a choice to become something. So those are that's where the practices are too. And that's why yeah. Ado's work is so important because he was saying that well these these people never intended you to just read their books. Uh, Plato, if you believe the seventh letter, and I do, he says it's not in there. It's not in my dialogues. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Buddha would never think you could, oh, yes, you know, just read the words that I spoke. Uh, yeah. In some Zen monasteries, they lock the books up for beginners. No, no, that, you, you need to start changing what you are mm. in order to uh, access these things, because so many of these traditions agree that with that you it's, it requires proper training to enter into the visionary and to be able to handle it appropriately, because mm-hmm. otherwise you can't really serve your culture. Um, you, you know, you you get glimpses, but you don't really know. And I actually talked to. Um, uh, uh, Rick Strassman about this a little because he was talking mm-hmm. about that in terms of his DMT research. I don't know if you saw his work on that, where he it, was yeah, saying, mm-hmm. "Yeah." So, did you see the Soul of Prophecy? Um. So DMT, did the, DMT, DMT, the, the Soul the, of Prophecy. Yeah. No, DMT, mm-hmm. the spirit molecule. Yeah. Right, and, that's and then the, the second book was the the Soul yeah. of Prophecy because mm-hmm. what he was saying yeah. is that if you compare, you give people a huge dose of DMT, and he said, "Look, it's definitely a powerful spiritual experience, but it's mm-hmm. not a visionary experience." Because if you compare that to what the biblical tradition expected of a prophet, these subjects were not able, these participants were not able to to meet that standard because they hadn't been trained. They hadn't been trained Mm -hmm. to really receive and navigate a visionary experience so that, so they would have to be the kind of person who could do that. And so it it does mark this place of what the philosophical traditions as as ways of life offer us, Mm -hmm. that we could walk a path that would be beyond the ordinary of just inter- having conversations, but real dialogue that changes you, that takes you to the aporia where you're scared because you don't know where to go, and something comes to make the way forward for mm-hmm. you, right? Okay, now, this is all fascinating, and it connects to the, the piece that you wrote that we want to talk about, but I then let's just finish your, your biography. Your, so then you left, and let's maybe we can indulge it as the call of wonder and, and the call to deeper philosophy in the old sense. And then how did you get into the, the paranormal? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, through uh, some coincidences, actually. So... Uh, it was probably about six months after I had left uh, Brandeis and I was in France at the time because uh, I I had been living there um, off and on. Like every time I wasn't needed at Brandeis, I was in France. Um, and so I was there and I was going through this bookstore and I found this new book that had come out. It was sitting on a table, um, a book by Bertrand Mayeux. I don't know if you know him, but he's a French sociologist and parapsychologist. And I mean, I'd never heard of him, but uh, I saw this book and had like a, uh, a crystal ball on the front and was like, uh, it was called The Miracles of the Mind, the Miracles de l'Esprit. 
Um, and so I just kind of picked up, I was like, what is, what is this? I mean, cause like it had this crystal ball on it, but it also looks like sort of serious. Like it, you know, it's like a French, you know, book. So it's like kind of erudite at the same side, at the same time. So I opened it up and I was like, what is this guy going to talk about? And I see on the first page that I look at uh, that he mentions this uh, professor at the University of Virginia, who it, it turns out is Ian Stevenson, who now I know very well or know his work very well. Um, by the time I had no idea who he was. So I see this mention of University of Virginia. I'm like, well, that's interesting because I am from Virginia. I grew up there. Um, I grew up about two hours from the University of Virginia. So I was like, well, that's, that's curious. And he's uh, in the book, he's talking about um, like Ian Stevenson's research into children who remember, who remember past lives. And specifically at the, in that passage, he was talking about uh, children who have birthmarks that correspond to wounds of the person whose life they remember. But there was a, a footnote right there. Uh, that was footnote 33 and uh, 33 had become an important number to me at that point. Like I had, had a few like little coincidences with 33s that were important to me. And so I was like, Oh, 33. Interesting. So then I look down at the footnote and it's 33. And then it references Ian Stevenson's book, a, a French edition of Ian Stevenson's book. Um, 20 cases suggested, uh, suggestive of reincarnation. So I see that title of that book. And this thought just crosses my mind. Like maybe they have that book in this store. So I'm like, I'm sitting there with the book and I look up from it and there's a bookshelf right in front of me. And as soon as my eyes focus on the bookshelf, I'm looking straight at that book. It's like, okay, I think I need to buy these books. So I went home. I had uh, Bertolmeu's book, which turned out to be an excellent introduction to parapsychology in general, to a lot of the um, remote viewing uh, experiments, to uh, Daryl Bem's experiments that had just come out. This was early 2011. Uh, and then I had Ian Stevenson's book uh, with all of his, his evidence for reincarnation. So those two books were my discovery of this entire field. I, I had no idea that there was this kind of careful scientific research into these anomalous phenomena. So that started it all, those coincidences. And I really, you know, I, I researched sort of anything connected to any, any sort of um, paranormal phenomena uh, for the next, I don't know, five or so years. And it was mostly just, you know, I had a few like little coincidences that happened to me, but um, it was mostly just like learning about it secondhand through these books. And I was very intrigued, but also kind of like, well, I don't, I don't know for sure. Like, like if it seemed, the research seemed very convincing to me, but I also didn't know whether this was something that I wanted to write about myself, whether I thought it was important enough or whether I was convinced enough of its truth to put my own reputation on the line and and talk about these subjects publicly uh and then yeah about five years later i had uh a really big coincidence experience uh, myself which just uh, when it happened i was like oh okay so this stuff is real there is no way to explain this stuff um in it 
there's no way to explain this event in any other way. Um, and I need to write about this. Mm. So, um, I mean, we can go into that. It's in my it's in my book, so people can uh, find more about that. If if I go into this, we'll end up doing my biography for the entire hour. <laughs> Maybe this will entice <laughs> people. We can leave it as an enticement. Uh, yeah, that's exciting. There's a funny. It's uh, this isn't doesn't have very much strong. I I, I think. In the piece we're going to talk about, there's a little bit where I, I sometimes say to people, once you recognize the unbroken wholeness of, of life, or you begin to entertain a holographic vision of the world, and you realize that everything is synchronicity, but then you still need discernment for what is just like, okay, sometimes it's the littlest wink. But I was just mm-hmm. writing about a client who uh, often people will have horse synchronicities. And when when they work with me, uh, for obvious reasons, but uh, in this particular case, I was writing about a client who was on their property in Virginia, and she dug up a vintage, really, really old Rolling Rock beer bottle. And of course, Rolling Rock's slogan, if you look at it, it says Rolling Rock 33 on it all the time. Mm-hmm. So I was just writing about a Virginian who not only encountered a horse, but the number 33. Um, so it's cute. Yes. All right. So you got seduced into it and, uh, that's wonderful. I really love how that crystal yes. ball called to you too, because it's such an archetypal image for us now. It's, it's God, it's, it seems mm-hmm. like it must be a young archetypal image because it's not as old an image as the horse is, for instance, but it still has that quality that it, it seems like it's part of the, <laughs> the collective unconscious at this point. So that's really yeah. powerful. Okay, so now so technically then you were at Brandeis when you Sorry. encountered this book, right? No, no, I had left Brandeis you had left. six months okay. previously. Yeah. Six mm-hmm. months, that's right. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, I was noting, though, in my mind how this is a really good example of how uh, education keeps you away, like the, the philosophical education as opposed to w- William James. It, it, I'm referencing this episode all the time because he was an interesting guy, very intelligent guy and just interested. In, and he was saying how uh, he, he says a scientific friend said to me that the great field of new discourse discoveries lies in the unclassified residuum mm-hmm. that's how he put the anomalous or the, his friend yeah did. and yeah. uh it's funny because i talked about bem's i wrote about bem's research and i was sitting around uh it, this was part of my dissertation and um and i wrote this thing and i i described it as carefully as i could the way that they did the experiment and for those of you who want to hear about it it's in the series on magic in one of the uh episodes you can find it you can email me if you want to know which one i can't remember right now but i talk about it in the same way i described to my colleagues and what was funny is that one of my colleagues i later found out because I'm, i present this thing and there there uh, uh one of my colleagues seemed completely unfazed by it he said oh well, you know whatever well, that colleague, about a week later, I found out that he did not understand. He didn't understand that the that the priming experiment was done in the future. He oh. it, it, he didn't make the shift. <laughs> he didn't get that one it's, thing. And and I kept saying, <laughs> I said, no, let let's. I actually in the description I wrote. Now this does not make any sense. So let's be clear that we understand why this is logically ridiculous to even run this experiment. So I went into painful details saying this is ridiculous. And he thought, and when he. When I explained it to him, he said, oh, my God, now that is crazy. 
But so you read it. Another colleague, very bright guy, who started out um, uh, in, uh, I think he maybe even finished his master's degree, but he was in a, in a graduate program in physics, really bright philosopher. And his response was, well, yeah, this definitely reveals a problem, because if you can do an experiment that, ver- that uh, gives support to that, you know science has a problem. <laughs> Mm-hmm. As a, so rather than rather than saying the phenomenon is real, we are absolutely sure we have to preserve appearances, right? No, it has to be that we've done the experiment wrong. Well, but at the same time, I think there's a deeper truth to what he's saying, which is, I mean, science definitely does have a problem because if psi phenomena are real, which you and I know they are, um, if they're real, then this idea of controlling an experiment so that only certain things are allowed to influence your dependent variable goes out the window. You yeah. have no idea what is creating the results that you're Absolutely. getting. Absolutely. Now, again, his so, point was the opposite. I mean, yeah. Yes, that's the point that you and but, I would be right, making. But, he wanted to make yeah. the opposite point. Yeah, we've right, got yeah. to nail everything down again. Yeah. This is ridiculous. <laughs> so that just shows yeah. the nervousness. Okay, so I know those some people might, this is a little bit of an inside story, but if you look up Daryl Bem's work, you can easily find, he actually even appeared on Colbert uh, around the time because it was a, he's, he was at Cornell. It was a very famous study. And then, you know, later... Um, uh, Mossbridge did a, a kind of, I think she did a meta-analysis. And so there's a lot mm-hmm. of work on this. But basically, yeah. it, it was it, these were experiments that verified a precognitive, some kind of precognitive capacity. And they're very interesting to look at. And, and again, the series on magic tries to take it take that seriously, some serious notion of, yeah. of magic, which is, yeah. I think, where we're headed. So then let's bring it to well, something. I, I, just one, just yeah. one note. Um, just in the last month or two, um, there was uh, another study that came out trying to uh, like a very large scale study trying to replicate one of Daryl Bem's experiments, um, which had a null result. Um, and actually looks like it was very, very well done. Um, so, I mean, there is still, it, that was, he did like five different experiments that came out in that same paper in 2011. And this was just one of them. Yeah. Um, but, but it is something that people are having ongoing discussion about, about whether these are replicable results. So. Yeah, sure. And and yeah. what's wonderful is that the people in, in in doing this work are open to these critiques and and satisfying. Oh, I mean, there's a whole history yeah. of people going back and forth and by refining the experiments the bar is mm-hmm. higher for them and they already oh, yeah. try to do the work at a higher level and then when critics come Absolutely. they'll say, "Look, we'll fi- we'll we'll fix the experiment, you know, if you think it's going to uh, I think those are beautiful exchanges. Yeah. So now you were at uh, um, somebody else I'd like to have on soon, Jeff Kripal, um, who's done a lot of work in, in this general area, and he had the Archives of the Impossible Conference. Is that an annual conference, Archives of the Impossible? Uh, well, this was the second annual second one. one. It sounds like there's going to be a third. So, yeah, I guess it is beautiful. going to be an annual event. So, uh, and so the Archives of the Impossible, which is wonderful. That's another way of putting the unclassified residuum. The stuff that doesn't yes. fit the paradigm <laughs> is, from the standpoint of the paradigm, impossible. You can't do it. So we're, we're dealing yes. with the impossible. And you presented a paper called The Impossible Efficacy of Intention, but question mark. Uh, mm-hmm. Psi, which is maybe the word for the supernatural, as Jeff Kripp would put it. Not supernatural, one word, but that nature is super. And so psi is the aspect of the superness of nature. Psi as a model for value-based holistic causation. Now, mm-hmm. that sounds a little 
it's got an academic ring to it, but at this the same time, it makes sense. This was an academic conference, so keep that in mind. It's okay. Yeah, I know. I'm, I, I became infamous for writing maybe the, one of the world's most uh, non-academic dissertations. I mean, it was, uh, but funny. Um, can you t- tell us a little bit about this, that you're, uh, if you're able to review sure. it, your, or yeah. your basic view that you're presenting there? Yeah, so... What I was presenting in that paper, and I mean, it was just a 25 minute talk. It was, it was a flash talk. So I didn't get to go into a lot of detail about it. Um, uh, but I, I do in the book that I'm currently writing. Uh, so what I explained there is that I am trying to solve a, a longstanding mystery in, uh, mainstream philosophy of mind. The question of how the mind and the body interact, and, and specifically how the mind uh, causally influences the body, if it does. Trying to solve that problem by looking at the operation of psi, using clues from psychic phenomena. So one of the things um, one of the things that I think is has been missed in the last at least hundred years, probably longer in trying to talk about the relationship of the mind to the body is that the mind's interaction with the body is at a holistic level. Because we, we tend to have uh, this reductionist view that, uh, and um, this reductionist view that uh, the philosopher Sam Coleman has recently started calling smallism, the, that the all of the things that we can know about the whole um, are actually reducible to things that we can know about its little parts. So the whole is reducible to the parts. And we've tried to figure out how the mind could be composed of the same little parts as matter is composed of. Or And then how, if the mind does somehow uh, have this ability to affect the causal evolution of the world, to figure out, like, at what point in the causal story does it enter? Like, where's the time and where's the place in the brain where, like, the soul gets purchased and actually, you know, changes something that's going to happen? I think this is a really problematic way of thinking about what's going on, because I don't think that the influence of the mind on the body is spatiotemporal in that way. I don't think that you can pinpoint a place and a time where the mind influences the body. I think actually what happens is the mind has uh, desires, wishes, intentions, a will And it is able to bring that will about in the world in a non-holistic way, which means, uh, so Stephen Browdy is a a parapsychologist who talks some about this. He talks about um, the magic wand hypothesis of how psi functions. Like you just wish for something and then it materializes. Well, I think that there's actually something really, deeply true about that. That's, that's holism at work. So you're, you can wish 
for a certain outcome. And then what happens is the physical world, including your body and, and the world outside of your body, changes in a holistic way in order to bring that outcome about. So the easiest way for the physical world to bring about most of the things that you want to experience is to actually change your body or move your body to a specific place um, so that you can experience that thing. So the way most of us experience Psy on a daily basis is through the way that we control our bodies. And if you think about, if you think about what it's like to like walk across the room, okay? You don't have to think about which muscles you're going to move. You don't have to think about like which neurons you need to fire. Uh, you just think, okay, I want to be over there on the other side of the room. And then your body just gets you there, right? So we have this sort of magic wand psychic feeling every day. We're doing all these things. We don't have to think about the details of of how our mind connects to our body. It just happens. And so what I want to do with bringing in Psy is to say that not only does the mind control the body in that way where it just manifests um, what we're wishing for, but it actually can control things that are external to the body. And this is what we see in synchronicity. This is what we see in... Uh, more blatantly paranormal phenomena where things outside of our body start to act as though they were our body. They, they seem to have uh, a mind behind them. And in many cases seem to have our mind behind them. Mm. So I'm really trying to connect the, this mind body problem to this question of how Psy works and I think we can illuminate both of these questions by connecting them with each other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's really there too. We go back to these ancient problems uh, that philosophers have, have spoken about because one of the things that I think holds together across so many uh, philosophers, even what I think is interesting is how uh, you can find a beautiful thread of connection between Buddha, Socrates, Epicurus, and of all people, Kant. Because they all bring out, and, and, and Kierkegaard would be there too, the fear and trembling, um, the ethical issues, which you couldn't talk about, of course, because this was a short piece, as you said, but the, the ethics was all coming out to me that mm -hmm. what Kant says is there's nothing, nothing more, nothing unconditionally good in the whole world and even beyond this world except one thing. Mm -hmm right? The good mm -hmm. will. Mm -hmm. And what Socrates and Buddha and the other philosophy, uh, philosophy as a way of life teaches that one of the problems we have is that we're not very good at intending. We think we, we are, but, but you can mm -hmm. see that if your theory is right, it's one way, the way I sometimes talk about it is that we, we, we would have to admit that we are intending the degradation of, of the conditions of life and the extinction of species. 
But nobody, very few people get up in the morning thinking, what I want to do is perpetuate human suffering a little bit, uh, increase inequality and injustice, degrade ecologies as much as possible. And you know what? I don't want to be completely happy at the end of the day either. Uh, pleasured? <laughs> sure, I'll take that. And so we're, we're not intending in an appropriate way. And so therefore we can't, uh, we are, we're seeing that we have a magical capacity to influence the world at planetary scale, but it is in the wrong direction. We don't know how to use our own magic. It's like those stories that you see in all these movies where somebody discovers magic is real. The next thing you know, everyone's, you know, all just chaos, right? Because they don't know how to use it. <laughs> right. And there's a way yes. in which what you're saying, it even is the, the kind of dark side of the new agey law of attraction. You know, sure, mm-hmm. you can law of attract a fur coat, but a baby seal is going to get clubbed somewhere. And so it's, mm-hmm. you know, the, you're not recognizing yeah. that when you law of attract a jet, somebody is out there dealing with the pollution from it. And it might not be you, but it is you indirectly too. I mean, well, now directly. We all have the plastic right. in our blood. We all have the jet fuel in our water. So it's really, this is a powerful thing. It is really recognizing how magical the world is and how much it needs us to take responsibility in our participation Yes, and I think too, to a lot of the a lot of the issues that arise come from the fact that, like you said, we're intending something. We're thinking only about what we're going to derive from the experience. We're not thinking about the implications that our intention has on others, uh, whether they're people or animals or plants or what have you. Uh, and so, so. We so I, for instance, I can intend a certain a certain thing, but my experience is also affected by the intentions of all of the other people that are around me and the other beings of various kinds, and so none of us can intend completely independently of of the others, and we, I think, especially in in modern society. Uh, uh, especially very you know capitalistic money focused society we're very focused on the idea of, well you know i'm going to get these things i want to get these things and it doesn't you know matter what i do to other people like the important thing is that i get it and we don't understand that a system that's based on all of us thinking that way is not going to get anybody in the long term nobody's going to be happy and fulfilled and so the only way to really intend in a in a way that is life-giving and pleasure-giving to everyone is to recognize those connections and to and in our intentions to be intending something that is good for the whole not just for the individual. And I think that's I really think that's the core of what the goodwill is is recognizing that it's not just me that I'm intending for, it's everyone. Yeah, and that you can't. I mean, this is Gregory Bateson's critique when he had the famous conference about the problem, the question of conscious human purpose. He didn't invite philosophers. And I think that's very telling. He didn't invite them. And uh, because he was not interested in abstract discussions about free will, he, he was saying, look, this is a problem that we do not, that conscious human purpose, as we generally practice it, is the degradation of the world that we depend on, yeah. the, the conditions mm-hmm. of life. And, and he was saying that if you want to know, look, 
he said, I, I'm, I will admit there are all manner of minor insanities in the religious traditions of the world, but that is nothing compared to the massive insanity of our scientific tradition that does not understand this problem. And that if you want to understand how people intended more skillfully, you have to look at rituals, rites, religious practices, that sure, there are problems of spiritual materialism. Fine, we can deal with those. Mm -hmm. But that if you want to know how to intend, those are the ways that people intend, through ceremony, through mm -hmm. ritual, uh, through training ourselves and having a culture rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty that makes us capable of intending yeah. in a good way. And so the, the practice of empathy and compassion and the, the practice of learning to take on uh, things, to take on some measure of suffering for ourselves for the good of others. Yes. And, yeah. And yes, absolutely. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. And it's interesting that because we're intending money so much, we see extraordinary inequality because since we don't realize it, we're not, uh, you know, everybody who intends money is not going to become a billionaire. A lot of our intention toward money because of the holism of the system means that as I intend money, it's Elon Musk who's going to get richer. Because the system is, you know, the system has a whole holism too. It doesn't see us as fragmented. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, you know, we, we don't know how to intend and, and that's not an appropriate thing to intend given the meaning of money in this context. It's not connected to ecological reality. It's not abundance right. in a spiritual sense. It's a very narrow definition, but we've seen exploding levels of wealth, like that the pharaohs would be astonished, right? Anybody mm -hmm. in history would yeah. be amazed at the level of wealth, yeah. and it's this power of intention. It's interesting, too, that we were talking a little bit about the Alexander Technique, and one of the things that Dewey liked about it is he said, you know, I really needed exposure to this to, to make real for myself and really fully understand my own ideas of mind-body connection because he was interested in a wholeness, in a total interwovenness that he called transactionalism mm -hmm. to separate the, the idea that there are even things interacting. He didn't like that idea. Yeah. And so... When a person comes to an Alexander teacher, one of the things that we get in touch with is an experience that normally we don't really have, that when we get out of a chair, let's say usually, you're right, as I have the intention to get out of the chair, get out of the chair, but I do effort. There is efforting. And Zhuangzi and Laozi and Buddha are all talking about non-doing, non-efforting. Mm -hmm. And the experience of, of having the thought to get out of the chair and suddenly feeling like it's happening by itself is this direct verification of the magic of the, of the world, it seems to me. It's such mm -hmm. a powerful thing that you really touch that place that sometimes we only touch whenever we're at the highest levels of performance. You know, the jazz musician who says, you know, look, I'm competent and I can go out and play any night of the week. I know it's going to be good, but there are times when something comes through and I have no idea. I'm watching my hands play it. And it's that, mm -hmm. I think, that really takes us yeah. to the sense. But it's available in washing your dishes. It's available in brushing your teeth. Like mm -hmm. you're saying, it's the, what these philosophers would say is that it's, it's our delusion to think that we have to do, even with the body, that we don't fully mm -hmm. understand, again, how to intend and let the magic arise, that it's always there. And you're well, kind of inviting us into that vision to see that, yeah, it's all, there's the world's magical. You want verification? There it is, right in your experience. Yeah, no, it is. It's as, it, yeah, it's as close as every moment of your of your conscious existence. Yep. Um, it, 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 I, I want to to piggyback on what you were saying about the 
these moments where it becomes effortless because I think that's connected to this idea of, of all beings being connected. And when you intend, instead of intending at cross purposes with other beings, if you instead join in the collective intention and you have the highest good of all of these beings in your heart and mind, that's when it becomes effortless because you're just, you're just joining in something that already wants to happen. You're, you're joining this whole group of beings that want to move in this particular direction and you just go along for the ride. Mm, Now we're in the church of wisdom, love and beauty. That's Sophia (laughs) right there. Sweet Sophia. Hallelujah (laughs) to Sophia. That's it. That's, that's really it. And one of the best, I think, examples of that even is, is uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's life. That uh, mm. when his sister Chen Kong wrote about her book, I think it's called Learning to Love, but she was writing about her experience of being in Vietnam with him. And this, too, is such a testament to philosophy as a way of life, because uh, sometimes people will say, oh, look, I don't have time to practice philosophy. I don't have time to meditate. And, and this guy was in the middle of a war zone. And if there was ever a time that's going to be hard to live what we, the way, what we're talking about to become that person and and let yourself be that person. Wow, is that challenging circumstances? But as she writes about it, she mm-hmm. said all we ever had was highest intention, which is emphasized in in, in the Buddhist tradition. Again, that's the thread because the Buddhist right. tradition says no, we can have that will. We can we can give ourselves over to it, and we, it's not self-effacing. It is the realization of ourselves. So highest intention plus highest awareness. That's it, right? That's magic. Mm-hmm. Highest mm-hmm. attention plus highest awareness. She would say, you know, we, we have no other explanation for how we were walking mindfully through through battlefields and, and not dying. And so many situations she talks about how she said, I have no idea how we got out of that, except that we kept highest intention plus highest awareness. And that's the formula for magic. That's the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Yeah, it reminds me, like, I, I've never thought about, thought about it in these terms, um, but I'm going to go out on a limb and, and <laughs> say it right now. Because um, we're, ta- we're talking about, you know, we're using the word magic and, and thinking about people who uh, use magical practices for things that I uh, would say are not in the highest good that are, are for selfish reasons. Um, they ca- they they can have some measure of effectiveness. We We do see that. But I think one thing that we also see is that there is there it's not effortless in the way that, that there's always a there's always a price to be paid. There's always a cost, um, whether that's moral or physical or mental. There's it's trying to trying to harness sigh or, or or what have you in a way that goes against uh the highest good i think it's draining because that energy has to come from somewhere but when you're doing it in accordance with the highest good then every everyone's everyone's energy is joining in this in the same direction and everyone actually i in my experience when i've experienced that like you know, being part of a group that has this kind of synergy and um, mutual help and compassion, 
you come away from it energized and things do ha- things happen in this ma- this magical fashion and it's not draining it's it's exactly the opposite of it so it's not that you it's not that you can't use this sort of use psi or or this connectedness um for nefarious purposes or but but it's not going to ultimately have the um the energizing beneficent effects absolutely it's, it's, yeah. You see it in the state of the world. You know, the way I sometimes yeah. put it is that wisdom is what works. And if you have, in, from the standpoint of fragmentation, fragments of wisdom will always create negative side effects. So wisdom is what works without negative side effects. If you have a fragment of wisdom, you still get the functionality, but now you're going to create mm-hmm. negative side effects because it's a fragment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's what right. Socrates was saying. Yes. People have partially correct opinions, which is a fragment of wisdom. I think I know. Mm-hmm. And then it seems to work. Of course, look, Socrates, I won the battle. Look, I'm rich. I'm famous. I, I wrote the poem. And he's saying, yeah, but there's all these negative side effects. And yeah. so how do we get to that place where we have wisdom as skillful interwovenness, true, mm-hmm. true functionality without creating the negative mm-hmm. side effects? You're right. And you see this portrayed. It's like the soul knows this because in the Star Wars movies, right, the, the, um, the Emperor Palpatine, he's all deformed by the, by mm-hmm. the dark side. And, yeah. you know, of course, there are deeper, you know, people ask questions about, you know, what's, what, you know, the villain being deformed. And, and it's not about, creating a negative stigma around people who have a scar, it's to try to teach us the lesson that we will wound ourselves if we handle magic in an unskillful way. And to emphasize again, yeah, we're using this word magic, you use psi, we're trying to recognize the superness of the world, the potentials that are in us and in the world, and look at it in a reasonable way. We're not throwing away our discernment here. We're saying there's evidence, there's even by the lights of dominant culture science, we have experiments that are very well done and would be ridiculously unlikely in terms of their p-value, their their statistical significance. Uh, so these are reasonable things to be asking about, especially when we look at the state of the world and we say, well, how did we get here and how, how do we get out of it? We've lived a world in which we can have this fragmented view, everybody out for themselves, and, and keeping the epistemological story narrow and our range of consciousness and experience narrow, this is what you get. What happens if you have a view of the world where everything is wholeness and where your intention needs to align with the, with the fullest intention? I love the way you put it because I absolutely agree. It's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, and I think, you know, you said, you talked about, well, we could say magic, we could say psi, uh, and my thought was, yeah, but ultimately what we're talking about is just wholeness. Yes. The holism of the world, because that's all that's all that psi is, all that magic is, is just the fact that everything is connected. And so your intention over here will make things happen over here because you're not really separate from all of those other things. Mm-hmm. And and if you're aware of if you're aware of the connections to some small degree, like you said, you have some little piece of wisdom, then you try to kind of game the system and make make it work in your favor. But the even higher awareness, the even higher um, wisdom is to recognize, well, because the system is so whole, you can never game it. <laughs> yeah. You can you're you're whatever you put out there, you're ultimately going to get back because you can affect other, other people. You can affect other things in the world because they are you. Mm. And so you can't, you can't shove off all the things that you don't want to experience on other people because it's, it's ultimately going to come back to you. They, they are you. Yeah. 
Yeah, and this again draws us to the thread of the deep root of wholeness, healing, and holiness. That that intention, mm-hmm. that sacred intention, that is, as you put it, it's rejuvenating, it's healing for the world, and it is in touch with the wholeness of the world. And it shows you that the mm-hmm. a curriculum of magic would be a curriculum in philosophy. It would be ethical training be, at the beginning. Buddha doesn't teach you meditation. If you, I want to meditate, okay, well, what kind of life are you living? What kind of person are you? What kind of person do you want to become? The ethics are the, are the beginning. Because until you can liberate your intention, we have to put some guardrails on it. You have to understand your limitations. Socrates telling us what we don't know, that we really have to appreciate how much we don't know and slow down so that we can get in touch with that, that, those, those kind of three-in-one purpose, healing, wholeness, and holiness. And you see there, too, archetypally, that when, when Mara says to Buddha, who do you think you are coming here? You think you're going to be enlightened. And what does he do? He touches the earth. She bears witness that he's, he is intending for the whole, that he has lived for the whole. Mm. Socrates, same thing. The divine itself, the oracle says, this is the wisest person. They're bearing witness to their intention as being clear. And how do we get to that? Because that's what Kierkegaard is telling us. How do you get to that place where you are a trustworthy soul when from the outside it may even look like you're not doing something that's, that's appropriate? Right, I mean that's the, mm-hmm. the the highest ethical bar that he's realizing that we would have to have that level of training, and that it doesn't make sense from the perspective that, that we're currently being educated in. Yeah. 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 Mm-mm-mm. Well, this is good stuff. It is, and it's it so is. so. Really it must be so much fun to to do this kind of research. I mean, every time I re- when, when I read people who write about synchronicities, I write about them sometimes. But I think, gosh, how much fun do you get to dig through these crazy stories <laughs> of things that happen to people that make you just say, "What?" Yeah, yeah. No, I know. It's it, I. I do feel like I. Uh, I'm very privileged to get to do this all of the time. I mean, it doesn't always feel like fun, um, but but it does a lot of the time. Yeah, and, and it's it's marvelous. I, I I love I love that feeling of excitement that comes from spending my time looking at the kinds of things that don't fit in mm-hmm. because because it's always learning something new. It's always you know and. Um, well, the recently, I guess it was a few months ago, uh, this new book came out uh, called Deep Weird that I wrote a chapter for. Uh, and it's it's all the different chapters are written by different people talking about different kinds of high strangeness. And the editor of the book, Jack Hunter, asked me to contribute something to it about synchronicity. And I was thinking to myself after he asked me, like, synchronicity is like the like the least deep weird (laughs) like it's like the most mundane sort of way that you can experience the paranormal why is he asking me to write about this for for deep weird but as i thought about it more i realized that actually um that it made a lot of sense that there is even even within the the phenomena or phenomenon of synchronicity, there is this whole class of synchronicities that are just so bizarre that all of the the different theories that we try to come up with to 
to explain what's happening with synchronicity that none of them quite work. And so even with all of the sort of theoretical work that I've tried to do to, you know, explain synchronicity in, in terms of these connections between people and all of this, still I keep discovering more uh, synchronicities that people experience. I'm like, I'm not sure that that fits in this. Like, I'm not like, this just seems out there. And, and I really have tried to, I, I think it's, it's tempting, especially once you've kind of, you know, you've got a theory going about, yeah, I think this explains it, but you come up, come across something that doesn't fit into that. You're like, oh, well, that's probably, I mean, we can just kind of like, you know, bat that away. That's not important. Like that, that, that person probably wasn't telling the truth about their experience. Um, it's really easy to try to sideline those things that don't fit. But I think it's so much more enriching and so much more exciting to say, no, let's keep thinking about this. Let's keep looking at those really bizarre synchronicities because what they're telling us is that as much as you know we may have made some progress in our understanding of how these things work we don't have it all yet we don't know <laughs> how all of this fits together and we need to stay open in that way mm. so I, I i appreciate being in a profession as an independent writer and researcher where i feel like i can maintain that openness and i don't have to try to just you know, defend one line of thinking for the rest of my career, but just say, no, we, we got to still, we got to still look at the mysterious cases. We got to still, um, we got to stay confronted with that, with the anomalous and, and the weird. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, that's what I love so much. That is what I love so much about what I do is there's always more. There's there's always more. There's always a more. Yeah, that's it. The great mystery just seems to keep unfolding. And Socrates is, is call, calls us to say, you are so comfortable with the known. And so often we, 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 have, we see people reflecting this idea that we'd rather cling to the suffering we know than move into the joy and potentials that are as yeah. of now unknown and therefore terrify the ego, even at an unconscious level. Because again, consciously, we may be saying we're gung-ho for the unknown, or I'm open-minded. And, but then if somebody were to look at your life or Socrates would come and, and really sit and talk with you, you'd realize that you weren't so open to the unknown as you thought. And and that's why the magic isn't happening in a good way yet, because we really have to humble ourselves and say, you know, look, I'm, I don't have to be the ego person who thinks I've mastered the law of attraction yeah. and I can make it all happen. <laughs> Maybe you don't know what you're doing, and that's right. part of what's causing problems in the world. It's really yeah. that, that space of the unknown is a little disconcerting, but how do we stay there? And uh, yeah, it's really see. I think synchronicities are so beautiful because, of course, sometimes they have. I mean, it's sort of like um, you could go to a a rock concert and it's really loud and crazy, and there's pyrotechnics, and maybe the the band comes in hanging from helicopter and everything. But you know, you could also just go to somebody playing the harp. In, in in a little uh, glen in the forest, and it's just very quiet, but it's just amazing. And sometimes synchronicities can seem like they're gentle, but they're so artful. And as Jung sh- showed, I think, as I know that he uses the word, word acausal, but I always read him as meaning just not your mechanistic causation. Yeah, that yeah, the soul kind of is is that yeah, it's a kind of nonlinear, non-local causality, and the soul mm-hmm. is willing your best 
for you. You know, it's 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 trying to to help you in your life and trying to guide us all in a good direction. Yeah. If if we could listen to them, so if we treated them as as so precious, and then of course, Pauli felt that. And I used to tell, even in the university, I would tell my students, you know, if you really f- begin to, I, I would invite them into philosophy as a way of life, and I would say, if you really begin to open up, you will experience synchronicities in this. Just in the mm-hmm. space of this course, it'll happen, because I agree with Pauli that that they often go not always but often correlate with the flowering of awareness with the potentials for transformation in us that mm-hmm. we have and make some beautiful what is your favorite maybe in closing you could share one of your favorite synchronicity stories if you're able well or, I, or, I was just thinking i want to tell this story uh, that's actually from my chapter in deep weird okay uh, so so uh well, I'll, I'll explain this in a minute, but okay. So the story itself is fairly simple. So um, uh, several years ago, probably 15 years ago, I was traveling in China because uh, I had a friend who was living there for a time and went to visit her. And we were uh, in the city of Chengdu. We'd been uh, kind of like wandering around doing a little shopping. Um, I don't do much shopping. I don't really care about <laughs> clothes and buying things, but I had found this pair of boots in this uh, Chinese shoe store that I just loved. I just thought they were awesome. I was like, I'm buying these. Um, so I bought the boots and uh, we went back to uh, where we were staying, which was like an hour and a half kind of outside of the city. Like took a bus back outside the city and get back to her house. And I'm like taking them out of the wrapper. I'm like, going to put them on again. And I realized that the shoe store gave me two of two shoes for the same foot. I don't remember if it was the right foot or the left foot, but they were both for the same foot. And I was just so disappointed <laughs> that these boots that I had found that I loved, I couldn't wear <laughs> because I didn't have the right feet. Um, but the thing was, like we had, ju- you know, we had just found this store where we were wandering around the city. We had no idea where it was. It was not like we could go back into the city and find it and be like, you know, can we exchange out this the wrong boot? So... Uh, there's actually this Chinese saying, meo banfa, which means there's no solution. Like, just get over it and move on. <laughs> so we're just like, yeah, meo banfa. And it was either that night or maybe the next night, we were back in uh, downtown Chengdu uh, with some friends of, of my friend. We were just kind of following them along the streets of Chengdu. They were taking us somewhere. We were just following along. And as we're going along up ahead on the sidewalk see this pile of shoes like the sidewalk is very wide and there's just this pile of shoes there and then i see shoes coming like being flung out of one of the storefronts into this pile so like what is going on so we get up close and um it's like the whole the whole store is being ransacked. I, I I couldn't tell if it was like employees of the store who were cleaning it out and throwing all the shoes out or if people were stealing stuff. I didn't know. But I look up at the storefront and realize that this is the shoe store where I bought those boots. And so I was like, okay, well, here's the shoe store. Um, clearly this store is not going to be open for business tomorrow. So I better look and see if that boot that I need is in this pile. So I lean down there and like, you know, I maybe move one or two shoes out of the way. And then there's the boot in the right size for the right foot. And I just walked away with it. Like nobody was paying attention. Like people were grabbing stuff from the pile left, right and walking away. I was like, okay, I'll just walk away with this. So 
I got the the boot that I needed. I was able to, I wore that pair of boots until they completely wore through the soles. Like I loved those boots. But what is weird to me about this, I mean, like I'm used to coincidences that bring people things that they need. Like that happens all of the time. Um, But I also tend to, to tell people like, you know, usually the universe brings you something in the, like, uh, in the most normal way possible. Like, it's it's not going to be ostentatious about it. Like, it's just, yeah, some little thing will happen and then the thing will be there that you need. And I was like, what was going on? And this, like, like it could have been that the universe could have just, like, um, you know, led me to the store and I could have gone in and asked about my boot. Or it could have, like, somebody could have happened to know what store I was talking about and be able to take me there. But instead... It was that I was walking down the street and the boot that I wanted was flung out of the store onto the street. So I didn't even have to talk to anybody. I had to, I made absolutely zero effort beyond, you know, picking it up out of the pile and walking away. So why was the universe doing something so ostentatious? And one of the things I thought about too, and this is, I often tell people this when I'm talking about coincidences, I'm like, well, sometimes, you know, the universe does something ostentatious to get your attention and to um to make sure that you know to make you realize what's happening that the universe is meeting your need in this way but the weird thing about this case was that i completely forgot about it afterward i i didn't think about that again i wrote a 600 page book on coincidences several years ago and i did not remember that event the whole time that I was writing that book. It wasn't until three years later when I started writing that chapter for Deep Weird that I remembered that thing that had happened in China. So I was like, well, it didn't even stick in my mind. Like it was, it was almost so bizarre. But the fault was not it, in the stars. The fault was in you in that case. So <laughs> Sophia tried to yell, hey, Sharon, Sharon, honey. And you, you said, wow, okay, whatever, Sophia, thanks for the boot. And you went away. And she's like, yeah, well, yeah, maybe, just yeah. And maybe thing. she was just like, okay, well, she's definitely not ready to like deal with this. So she <laughs> waited a few years and then brought me something else pretty ostentatious. Yeah. So um, it might mean that it, the time is to sit with it and to really wonder because that's archetypal, seven league boots. There's, I mean, there are all sorts of things you could sit through. Of course, the, part of it is sometimes I think she just has a sense of humor. I mean, I sometimes what? say yeah. say that, that that synchronicities are sugar pun fairies, not sugar plum, but sugar <laughs> sugar pun fairies that dance yes. in our heads. They're little puns of the cosmos, and Sophia just likes her own wit, you know, so to speak. And that's just my name for the mystery. You know, I think it's good to have a, a feminine name for the non-dual mystery. But sure. uh, but also sometimes it's even perspective that she's being playful that. For, see, we we we're so egocentric. Is oh, I had a I had a dream about a rabbit. I never dream about rabbits. And then I went outside, and I you know I live in a place where there aren't any rabbits. I mean, we never see them. And there was a rabbit, and and I, it's amazing. And we think it's such a big deal. Meanwhile, the rabbit goes home and says. Oh my God, I had a dream about a human being. I was being, I was being observed by a dog and I was really scared that the dog was going to do something to me. And then a human being came walk and walked along and I was able to run into the bushes and the dog didn't follow me. I can't believe it. So for the rabbit, for the rabbit is a life saving synchronicity. We think it's a big yes. deal and we don't realize. <laughs> 
So we're, you know, so sometimes this perspective and that she's enjoying that we're in on somebody else's experience, but we don't even quite understand it. So maybe you were part of the shoe store's synchronicity. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? That. But I, I like what you said about puns because we do see those over and over again in synchronicities. Yeah. And I and I've thought about it in this case because we have the you know expression waiting for the other shoe to drop. Yes. And it was like the shoe basically like flew yes. in the air and dropped in right. you know the sidewalk in front of me. So and I'd never quite known what to do with that pun, but you're talking now about how well, you know, maybe she was trying to get your attention and it didn't work. And so, you know, she had to wait. So maybe it has to do with this this feeling of, yeah, like waiting for the other shooter drop, like waiting for me to be ready to incorporate this strangeness it's dropping the shoe is dropping yeah. finally after 15 years i mean yeah. it, it really could be i would encourage you to sit with it and 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 it's, see what happens it's uh, and it's so interesting too that this is a place i, I recently did we had dialogue with a, uh, a dream worker and she, her, part of how she works with dreams is to incorporate uh, the practice of focusing which was developed by uh, a philosopher gene genlin do you know genlin's work at all so. We can talk about it another time. We, won't, we yeah. don't have to go into it. It's really interesting. But what, but she, what she does, though, is she, you know, you might have had a dream 15 years ago that was significant. And, but you go to her today, and what she'll do is help you to enter back into the experience and just get in touch with, with I sometimes, I refer to it as the proprioception of the soul. That, mm. you, you know, there's, mm. there's a sense, there's a way that synchronicities are part of how the soul is navigating through. The same way we need proprioception, yeah. the soul, which transcends the body, is using this as its own proprioception, if we can feel it. I and like so, that a lot, yeah. Yeah, and so what she would do is get you in touch with the with the felt sense of that experience of the boot and so on, and what, what the boot means so that the soul can finally deliver the message, that if we slow down around a synchronicity, it's almost to say that anything that registers as kind of like, wow, we should slow down and see, because for the girl and the scarab, it's powerful because, from her perspective, that changed her whole life. She was stuck. The therapy right. was stuck. And Jung is saying that this is the highest bar of synchronicity is that it offers the transformational insight. And so if we receive anything as synchronistic, if we sat with it, we might find out that there is an opening, just like in a dream that we knew was great, but nobody worked through it. And then 15 years later, we sit down with someone and, and we say, oh, my God. I see, I see something more there and I can take another, the more that you're, there's always the more. Any synchronicity that could stick with you. And even if you had to rediscover it, there's a more maybe in it. Yeah, I, I, I think absolutely. And I think it comes back to that, the whole idea of holism too, because I think part of why we are puzzled by the meaning of certain synchronicities is because we think that the meaning of them must be contained, you know, in this small, you know, portion of time in which we experienced it. And if it's not immediately evident why it happened, then, then there isn't a deeper meaning, but sometimes, yeah, you, it's 15 years later. Sometimes it's, it's long. Sometimes it's, it, it comes back at many different times and it brings back more meaning as it weaves into all of the other events of our lives. Mm. And so I, I think you're exactly right. There's always more because every piece is, is the whole in a sense. And so you, you could, you could view your entire life through the lens of that one synchronicity. Mm, mm, yeah. And the thing is that we know that the meaning has got to transcend the contents of the ego. And that's why mm-hmm. we have to sit with it because we say to that ego, you, you can't possibly know. 
this happened beyond your that is synchronicity is the yeah. rupture of time space and identity mm-hmm. so it is beyond the little narrow band of awareness that we're operating and saying i this is me well that i is not you actually and this thing was trying to bridge the gap into more of what you are so you will have to let the ego will have to say i don't know thank you don't know and let's find out what it means yeah Yeah, that's beautiful that's a wonderful note to to end on and uh I would love to maybe have you back again, have more dialogue someday, yeah. but I really appreciate you for joining us here and sharing all of this wonderful work yeah. you do. Yeah, I think there's there's hundreds of other things we could talk about. <laughs> um, so yeah, hopefully we'll get the opportunity to do that at some That point. sounds good. Well, thank you so much, and thanks to all of you for joining us. If you have any questions or comments, reflections, stories of synchronicity to share, that would be delightful to hear about. Send them in through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring some of them into a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you clearly that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them. <laughs> <laughs>